Welcome to Listener's Advisory, the San Diego Public Library podcast. Ever notice those spine label stickers on library books that identify genre or special collections and imagine they'd be problematic? Today, we'll meet some of the folks from SDPL's LGBTQIA Services Committee and learn why some of those stickers are not only important, but also the dilemma librarians face in placing them on books. Also, Comic-Con is around the corner. We'll hang out with a librarian slash comic and graphic novel enthusiast for some related recommendations. So stick around. This should be fun. To label or not to label. Don't judge a book by its cover, but what about the label on the spine? Every June and July, the San Diego Public Library's LGBTQIA Services Committee presents a series of events celebrating Pride at SDPL. Past years, they put together a lit cafe at the San Diego Pride Festival, and this year they're doing a series of Pride story times featuring drag queens. But the committee doesn't just celebrate Pride. They meet year-round and confront tough and important issues. I sat in on a recent meeting because the library shop, which is who I work for, is supporting the story times this year with a traveling pride-themed pop-up shop, and I was struck by some of the more esoteric librarian work the committee does, including a slow-burning debate about the system-wide labeling of LGBTQIA centered stories with a rainbow sticker on the spine. Coming into the conversation, I imagined whether or not to label books as a simple decision. Spoiler alert, it's not. I left the meeting with a new appreciation for the care with which librarians do their work, and I wanted to share with you some of their thoughts. First, I spoke with committee member Aaron Wilson, a library assistant, too, at the University Heights branch. The rainbow label started here from Anselmo, who works at Mission Hills now. He and I agreed that it would be a nice thing to do for the neighborhood to have that label to go to have a place to go to to be able to recognize your books that you would like to check out. This brings up an interesting point about the San Diego Public Library system. From afar, I always thought it was a vast bureaucracy with directives coming down from on high, but having visited all 36 branches and seen how unique they are, I'm inspired by how responsive SDPL is to the needs of individual neighborhoods and how diverse those responses can be. Certainly there are system-wide rules and policies, but so much of librarian work is listening to the neighborhood and innovating branch by branch. The rainbow labels aren't system-wide and they really happened organically. It was told to me at the time that if we had a section for that genre, we could put the rainbow labels on. So we made a section for it. And we were the ones that pretty much decided what would make that book a rainbow book. And early reviews of the labels were mostly positive. There are people that have been very grateful for that rainbow sticker. Most of the people that are adults now wish that they had libraries when they were young that had an LGBT label so they could find the books they were looking for without going down an aisle and hoping that those books were about them and maybe uh, not having a librarian judge them from afar. And nobody really made that big of a deal out of it. Every once in a while, there would be someone that would complain about having gay books in the library or whatever. But for the most part, nobody really cared about the way that it was set up. But I am concerned now about the otherness and just where do we go from here? Otherness. That's also a word I heard from other members of the committee. A spine label can be about discoverability or inclusion, but can it also be a scarlet letter? 
in the past maybe five years, we have heard a lot of things about uh, juveniles getting some sort of maybe hassling, being hassled by having a book that has a rainbow on it. And that is a concern for me because I don't want a child to be hassled or bullied by a book that has a a rainbow on it. So if you're keeping score at home, I've changed my mind like three times already in this segment. And maybe that's not a surprise. I still haven't figured out how to organize my own bookshelves at home. And and that affects absolutely no one. But what is also obvious now, and I told this to Francesca Devera, the head of the LGBTQIA plus services committee, I am completely out of my depth here. Everything is already pre-labeled for me. Everything is set up for my existence. So I didn't quite understand this whole debate. And as I dug into it, I realized there's a lot of complicated issues. There's pluses and minuses. So what is your feeling about labels on books at SCPL? From hearing from both sides, we've had this discussion in my committee. And just being a queer and trans woman, um, it's something that's really personal to me. And important. Well, it's important on a personal level and a professional level because... Um, like what you just said, from my experience, I, in the world, the world is not set up for me. I, in a, in the world where I don't have a place yet, so I have to make my own spaces. And I would say, I can't speak for all like trans or queer or LGBTQ people because we're not a monolith. We come to, you know, we come to the table with our own personal experiences, but just from a professional viewpoint as a librarian, but also a personal level as a queer and trans woman, these visual cues are very, very powerful because the history of queer cultures, it's been taboo, it's been forbidden until very, very recently and still very dependent upon your geographic location. And so I think just for our library here at San Diego Public Library, I'm for having the labels. I then asked her about the unintended consequences Aaron was concerned about and this concept of othering. When I, especially with the young adult fiction, just when I see like the rainbow label on the spine of a book, I just get really happy. If I was just a patron, you know, a teenage person, I could just, I mean, I can speak from my own experience being a, you know, with hindsight, being a queer teenager, if I would see those books with that rainbow label, I would know I was in a space that was safe for me and that was welcoming. So I think this representation and these visual cues for any group that has been underrepresented throughout history who still face such equitable barriers in our society, I just think they're very powerful. Do we have to be careful not to separate them? Because I mean, I do agree that they can other the certain group we're trying to, you know, reach out to feel welcome with the best intentions. But for me, I am for labeling our queer books with a rainbow sticker and interfiling them with the young adult fiction. I think today we're fortunate that a lot of the books being created are very inclusive and very like inclusive of different um, identities and gender identities, but we're not there yet. So I think we still need to have those visual cues to let especially queer people know during Pride Month that here at the library, you are welcome. I think when I imagine this segment in my head that the whole to label or not to label debate would be an interesting insight into the level of care and detail which our librarians do their work. But in this case, a label is really just a band-aid when you live in a society that is built on inequity and 
exclusion. And it's just not feeling welcome, it's feeling safe in a space. I mean, the reality for queer people, especially trans people and non-binary people is we still experience such levels of violence in the society. So I think it's also not feeling welcome, it's feeling safe to be yourself. And I've been fortunate as a queer professional to feel very comfortable, you know, bringing forth my authentic self through the support of the staff here. And so I'm very fortunate because I can't say I would have had that welcome like 20, 30 years ago. Or even with our collections, we wouldn't have these, we didn't have these books 20, 30 years ago. This was from the efforts of queer artists and authors to make these windows, oh no, first and foremost, these mirrors so that we can see ourselves in our collections and you know, windows for allies and different community members to see our common humanity. Every June and July, the San Diego Public Library celebrates Pride at the Library. For more details, including a full list of programs and events and an online reading list, visit sandiego.gov forward slash LGBTQIA. Hey folks, Bob here. Today I'm with Dave Ega, branch manager of the San Carlos Library and host of the excellent web series, Lord of the Rings Life Lessons. We here in San Diego are in what's commonly known as Comic-Con season, although due to the pandemic, Comic-Con is not happening in its traditional sense this year. However, Dave is a comic book and graphic novel enthusiast, so I thought I'd invite him to provide us with some recommendations. Dave, how are you? Doing well. So before we begin, would you mind giving us your comic bona fides and background? Sure. Uh, I actually came through librarianship through working at a comic book store. Uh, In the early 90s, I worked at two different shops up in the Orange County area. And when I had to decide uh, what kind of career to get later in life, I decided I'd uh, work around books and I really enjoyed maintaining the collection and getting the new books and sharing them with everybody. So I decided maybe I'll work at a library. Uh, As far as collecting comics, I recently looked back and I think I walked into a comic book store in 1982. I think I was eight years old. I've been collecting on and off ever since then. Uh, In the late 80s, early 90s, there was a great renaissance in um, the medium being looked at as an art form. This is when the Vertigo comics and Sandman and a lot of that stuff was coming out. I really got into the sort of artistic side of the medium, and now I've come full circle, and I really appreciate the historical side, and I enjoy reading the 40s and the 50s comics just as much because uh, you really get insight into that era in which they were written. So uh, what recommendations do you have for us today? I do have a vast knowledge of graphic novels and comic books, but I was trying to think of the really good stuff. If I had to recommend something, what would I go with? First thing that came to mind was Astro City, Life in the Big City. This is a graphic novel that collects the first six issues of Astro City. Um, It was originally published in 1995. The stories are just about the superheroes and the regular people that live in Astro City. They're more kind of one-off stories. What I really like about it is it's a unique universe. As much as I enjoy the DC universe, the Marvel universe. Uh, The writer, Kurt Buzik, he's created an entire superhero universe that's very recognizable, but he could do whatever he wants with. So there's a character, the Samaritan, that's obviously Superman, the Silver Agent, that's Captain America, the First Family, that's Fantastic Four. But since they're his own creations, he can do whatever stories he wants, 
and he doesn't have a company telling him, you know, well, Superman can't act that way or Batman can't act that way. So it's great because uh, he can create some really fascinating stories. And sometimes the character, the superheroes aren't even the main characters. They're the background characters in the stories. One of the best ones I remember was actually a support group of victims of family members who died due to superhero violence. So when the big superhero battles happen, this is the support group that comes and talks about how they lost family members. It's a great alternate take on sort of superhero stories. While it's set in a superhero universe, it's not uh, just the rock'em sock'em battles that we're used to seeing. Next up, we have Top 10, Book 1. Top 10 is collecting the first seven issues of the series Top 10. It was originally published in 1999. It is written by the best writer in comic books, Alan Moore. You'll notice him from yeah. the Watchmen and many other V for Vendetta, from Hell. A lot of his work has been made into movies. But what was great about Top 10 is he sort of takes on a, the superhero world post-World War II. In our world, World War II was when all the superheroes were created. So he had this idea of, well, what happened after World War II to all these superpowered beings? They had to go somewhere, so they created a city called Neopolis, and it's just for superpowered beings to live in. And by the 1980s, it's overridden, it's overcrowded, it's crime-ridden, and they have to create a police force of superpowered officers to control the superpowered population. So that's what Top 10 is about. It is about a young rookie, her name's Toy Box. She's a new superhero, and she joins Precinct 10, which is known as Top 10. And she's partnered with a veteran, his name is Smacks, and she's gonna learn the job. What's great about the comic, again, is it's while it's based in a superhero universe, it's very much like a TV crime drama. Smacks and Toy Box aren't the only two officers. It follows other officers as they come and go from the precinct, and they're following different crimes, and you get to see some fascinating, interesting crime scenes because they're all superheroes sure, uh, and yeah, villains yeah. creating, <laughs> uh, doing the crimes. And then, of course, uh, they bring in the reality of the superhero officers wondering, you know, Will we ever make a difference? Does this ever change anything? So, uh, so again, a superhero universe, but another kind of different take on it. So it a, that's a fun one to read, and I would definitely recommend Top 10. Nice, nice. And the last one I was going to recommend, uh, just for fun, and it was something I read recently, it's Superman Tales of the Bizarro World. And these are actually uh, stories from Adventure Comics written in 1961, 1962. For those that don't know, Bizarro Superman is a imperfect clone of Superman. Uh, so he does everything the opposite of Superman. He actually got himself his hands on the cloning machine and he made hundreds of clones of himself and he made clones of Bizarro Lois Lane and Superman went in space and actually made a planet for all the Bizarros to live on and that's the Bizarro world. Okay. This is all just a big setup for the Bizarro Code, which is us do the opposite of all earthly things. Us hate beauty. Us love ugliness. Is big crime to make anything perfect on the Bizarro world. So everything's the opposite. It's just a lot of great joke comics. It's actually written by the Superman creator, Jerry Siegel. Um, a lot of great sight gags. The Bizarros sleep with their feet on the pillows and their heads at the foot of the bed. They eat off the floor while their dog sits at the table and they hope the dog throws them scraps. So a lot of good sight gags. Um, sometimes other characters come and get trapped on the Bizarro world. Superboy has to lose a baseball game to leave the Bizarro world. Jimmy Olsen has to write uninteresting stories so he could leave the Bizarro world. Everything's the opposite. Um, but what I found really entertaining about the stories were you can't really write a story where everybody acts the opposite because it wouldn't make much sense. So sometimes Bizarro doesn't even follow his own rules, which just adds to the insanity of the Bizarro stories. So just a great, uh, fun comic to read. 
A couple weeks ago, you and I were speaking about the Disney Plus series Falcon and Winter Soldier. The show broached the subject of racial reckoning in America, which made me think of another show, the 2019 HBO series Watchmen. Um, and in preparation for this interview, I went back and I read the original 1986 graphic novel Watchmen, written, as you said, by Alan Moore and illustrated by Dave Gibbons. It's basically about a group of retired superheroes that attend the funeral of a former um, murdered colleague. As events unfold, there's growing concern that someone is out to destroy them. I really found this book intriguing because it touches on themes of American hero worship, how that bleeds into nationalism and politics and you know, the moral quandaries that come along with all that. Really nuanced and complex stuff. This for me was a great example of how the medium of comics can really do whatever we ask of it. Watchmen was about 1986, 1987. That was yeah. that era when the comics were pushing it into an art form. And, and, and what, right. more, what more stories, what different stories can you tell instead of the same superhero stuff over and over again? And him uh, taking that, superhero genre and deconstructing it like that and sort of taking them out of the archetypes and making them as if they were real people and how would they really act in a real world was very innovative at the time. I should say that this comic book, Watchmen, is not for kids, so reader beware. The other one that I I brought along was Through the Woods by Emily Carroll, which was published in 2014. It's a series of spooky horror tales that are kind of folky-ish. Um, so nothing really gory or even grotesque, just mostly creepy and dark. Um, and I will say that it's more suggestive than explicit in most of the stories, which I really appreciate, especially when it comes to the genre of horror. Um, the art is mostly minimalist, but not really skimpy in that department. Kind of a lot of reds and blacks in the palette. What are you reading now? Uh, right now, I am on a historical read of the DC Universe. I am in the Silver Age, which is the early 60s. I have just finished up some Hawkman stories, Adam stories, uh, and Superman, and now I'm going to start the Flash of the Silver Age. So this will be um, the introduction of Kid Flash, the introduction of uh, Reverse Flash. Those of you out there, well, you'll know the characters I'm talking about. Thanks, Dave. This is Rad rocking with you. Thanks, Bob. That's going to do it for today's episode. I'd like to thank our guests, Aaron Wilson, Francesca Devera, and Dave Ega. Major thanks to Pete Meisner and Luke Henshaw for contributing original music, and an extra special shout-out to the LGBTQIA Services Committee for their year-round work in advocating for equitable services to our LGBTQIA communities. For more information about related services or titles mentioned in this episode, please see our show notes or visit us at www.sandiego.gov forward slash SDPL podcast.